Welcome to the New England Law Review on Remand podcast. I'm the Volume 48 Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to newinglrev, that's n-e-w-e-n-g-l-r-e-v.com. There you can find our most recent on-remand article about the Massachusetts Civil Service Commission decision reinstating six cops who tested positive for cocaine. Also, we have our most up-to-date Massachusetts Criminal Digest, Issue 1. So, our Massachusetts Criminal Digest provides citable, straightforward summaries of recent criminal law cases decided by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. They're compiled by our editors, and today we have one of our editors, Felicia Playhive, a comment and note editor for Volume 48, who's here to discuss with us Commonwealth v. Horn, citation of which is 466, Mass, 440, and it was decided on September 16, 2013. So, Felicia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Felicia, before we start discussing the case, could you tell me what category you would put this case into? I think that based on the numerous issues that are presented in the case, it should be labeled under jury instructions, and under sentencing. Okay, so off of that note, could you summarize the facts for us and what what happened here? So in Commonwealth v. Horn, what happened was on October 18, 2009, there were eight bullets that were fired through a window, and that window was covered by Venetian blinds and dark curtains. And four of those bullets that were shot through the window hit and killed a 19-year-old girl named Brittany Perez. And the defendant who was seen fleeing the area where the victim lived was convicted in Superior Court. And so what was the defendant doing there? The facts indicated that the victim was throwing a party that night, and one of the attendants of the party had stolen the defendant's TV. And the defendant showed up to that house to see the person that stole the TV, and that was when he presented the rifle. And he ended up leaving the party to come back with a friend, and that is when the defendant shot through the window. I'm assuming it, he was there because of the person who was at the party mm-hmm. and the fact that the defendant had assumed that he stole his TV. All right, so there were four primary issues that the SJC faced with this case. So the first of which being whether the defendant's first-degree murder conviction for this crime should be reversed because the judge erred in declining to instruct the jury on involuntary manslaughter. So what did the court have to say about this? The court ended up holding that the judge did err in declining to instruct the jury on involuntary manslaughter. Basically, how the court reasoned was that an involuntary manslaughter instruction must be given when the evidence, in light most favorable to the defendant, permits a reasonable jury to find wanton and reckless conduct rather than conduct within a plain and strong likelihood of death resulting. So in this case, there wasn't the instruction given, but the jury could have reasonably found that the defendant did not know that shooting through a window that's, you know, covered with blinds was going to be occupied by a person. And so the second issue being whether the judge erred by instructing the jury on joint venture liability. So this issue came up because the defendant was with another person during the crime, correct? That's correct. And so how did the court hold on this issue? Um, The court held that the judge did not err by instructing the jury on joint venture liability 
because there was sufficient evidence, including evidence used by the defendant, that another person was involved. Evidence showed that Haley was the person that was with the defendant, and they were together prior to the shootings. They were together throughout the day, and they were even together when they discussed the theft of the television. Great, and so on to the third issue the court faced, which was whether the judge abused his discretion in allowing the prosecutor to impeach a defense witness's credibility by eliciting testimony from that witness concerning her failure to bring exculpatory information to the attention of the police. So to start off with this issue, who is the witness that the issue is addressing? The witness that was used, his name was Howell, and this witness worked with the defendant. Basically, the witness was presented in court to give testimony that the defendant had good character. And what the defense is trying to argue is that they used evidence of a conversation that the witness had with Haley, who was the person that the defendant was with, they used that conversation to impeach the witness because the witness did not bring up that conversation. And what the conversation included was that the defendant was going to commit this crime. And Haley admitted to the witness that it was the defendant's who planned the entire thing. And that's why the defense is trying to say that you can't use that conversation to impeach the witness. However, the SJC found that the judge did not abuse his discretion by allowing the prosecutor to impeach a defense witness's credibility because the proper foundation was established. And once that's established, you can use a witness's silence to be treated as a prior inconsistent statement. The SJC found that the prosecution had laid the foundation by showing that the witness understood that Haley's statement was important and potentially exculpatory because he told her the defendant was a dirty dog and that the witness was motivated to help the defendant since her testimony indicated that she was friendly with the defendant and the witness had a chance to convey the information to the authorities. She could have told the police, but she chose not to. And therefore, once that foundation was established, prosecution was allowed to use the witness's silence of that conversation as a prior inconsistent statement. Great, so on to our fourth and final issue the SJC faced, whether the two separate convictions of the unlicensed carrying of a rifle are duplicative. How did the SJC treat this one? The SJC found that the two firearm convictions were not duplicative. The court concluded that an individual commits a single violation for the duration of an un interrupted period that the individual carries a firearm outside of his or her residence. And that was the first time that the defendant had showed up to the victim's house, pulled out the rifle, and was basically trying to threaten the person that had stole his TV. The second violation occurred when the defendant had left the victim's house the first time, went home, and came back and still had the rifle. Basically, under the Massachusetts General Laws, Chapter 269, Section 10A, you can violate that when you take a rifle outside of your residence. The defendant did that the first time, going to the house, showing the rifle, going back home, and he violated the second time when he left the house again. And that's how the SJC found that the two firearm convictions were not duplicative. Interesting. So we've discussed a lot about this specific case, the facts of it, the holding. 
What is this case's real impact on the law? Why should practitioners be looking at it before they write their next brief or memo on this topic? I think that Commonwealth v. Horn depicts the importance of the jury's reasonable person mentality when considering a case. The SJC focused on how the jury must receive the, the appropriate jury instructions. The court clarified that when a judge fails to instruct the jury on a conviction, even if there's only a small amount of evidentiary support, a defendant is entitled to a new trial. This judgment maintains efficiency in the Massachusetts criminal justice system because it guarantees that a defendant will receive a fair trial by striving to ensure that jurors will always receive proper instructions of a conviction. Great. Well, Felicia, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss Commonwealth v. Horn. Thank you for having me. So to find out more and to actually access the case summary of Commonwealth v. Horn, you can go to our website, newinglrev.com, and click on the tab, Mass Crim Digest, where it will be located under our Issue 1. Forthcoming, we'll be having our Volume 48, Book 1 available, information of which is on our forthcoming page. More from the Massachusetts Criminal Digest, including Commonwealth v. Chatham and Commonwealth v. Sylvani, as well as coverage from the symposium. I'm the Volume 48 Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs, and thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review on Remand podcast.